Well, good morning, everyone. All right. You guys got bad weather, but hey, look at the city we live in, though, right? None of you are excited about that at all? Yes, one of you, right on. I was trying to... No, I can't do it. Um, Well, my name's Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. Really excited to be with you guys this week, uh, following up Pastor Eric last week, and I know he had mentioned... Uh, that we were going in a direction, so to speak, uh, that would lead us over the next 10 weeks of this summer where in as much as you, we would evaluate our hearts, the way that we think about our city, the way we look at our neighborhood in a way of preparing for a new launch coming this fall. So I want to, in every way, try to excite you along those lines as well. Um, And I think the reason I'm so excited about this is because as I studied for this, I realize that uh, nobody probably fails in this area worse than me. So, I'm sure there's at least one more of you out there, but at least for my sake, this sermon this morning is, is really going to be helpful. So last year, 2012, Fortune Magazine uh, put out an article concerning what was at the time the new book on networking. So, social networking, uh, Professional networking, relationship networking, uh, and the book was titled, and forgive me, it is super corny, but bear with me, The Startup of You, Adapt to the Future and Invest in Yourself. And in this article, more so than the book's content or topics, the authors were highlighted. See, these authors, there was two of them, represented two schools of thought when it came to networking. You had what was termed the old school networker, which was somebody who brought in all relationships based on the capital that those individuals had that he might benefit, he or she might benefit from them. The new school or new builder, as it were, is someone who is keenly um, involved in both their talents and the resources that they have, and so see a cause or another person and desire to build relationship with that person so as to share those things for their best interest. Now, though they represent two completely opposing views, the authors agree that when it comes to building any type of relationship or pushing forward any type of cause, that there are two absolute necessities and one thing that makes it almost impossible for it to happen. Those two necessities are as follows. We must be willing to try and understand the world from another person's perspective. I mean, this seems pretty straightforward, right? Everybody can agree if you have any type of relationship at all, you understand that at some point you're going to have to try to see the way that they see things. You're going to have to try to get behind them and get their worldview, uh, or get wrapped around their worldview. You're going to have to be in their shoes. Seems simple enough. Number two, we must be willing to collaborate with the other person for the benefit, for their benefit and not our own. There's going to have to be some type of selfless nature in this relationship where you're seeking their best interest to some degree, trying to see the world and opportunity through their eyes. Now, even though the authors agreed that these were absolutely necessary, that relationships could not blossom, that causes could not move forward without them, they agreed that more often than not, they never leave the ground based on this one conflict. Compromise. Nobody can view the term compromise in a positive light. None of us can. When we think of the term compromise, all that comes to mind is loss. Someone, if not both of us, have to lose something for a compromise to take place. Or at least some of our distinctives have to be blurred. We have to set aside and let go of something for a compromise. Now, what if I told you this is not you know, a uniquely professional um, issue, but it's a universal human one. All of us, every single one of us, have to deal with the fact that we don't like to lose and that compromise falls in line as a bad word. Now, what if I told you it wasn't a new issue either, but for the sake of the argument today, I'm going to say this is something that plagued the Corinthian church some 1,900 plus years ago in as much, and, and bear with me, in as much as it plagues Bethel Christian Church today. For the Christian, compromise is a uniquely scary word. When we think of compromise, it takes a few twists and turns that we're not so comfortable with. To many, it denotes the loss of liberty or privilege or position that we have in Jesus Christ 
Or worse, it shakes the very foundation of the doctrine that shapes and builds the church or the mission by which she's called out into the world. So the Christian, as a result of that fear, holds very tightly white-knuckle grip onto the characteristics that make us exclusive. And the sad thing is, I think, in doing so, she loses much of her effectiveness both inwardly here and in the world outside of us. And I think this is the very problem that Paul is trying to address in our text this morning. 1 Corinthians 9. You see, in chapters 1 through 8, the church has protected and abused their freedoms. The church has protected and abused their freedoms to such a sinful degree that the health of the church and the mission of God is no longer in view at all. And as a result, Paul uses what I'm going to coin his method of compromise as a means to get the church back on track. I think he would say it this way. I think Paul's main objective is to articulate ultimately, since I apparently lost it, I don't have it in front of me. That's cool. Is to ultimately say this, that we are most free we are most effective, we are most powerfully advancing the kingdom when our rights and our liberties and our, um, and our exclusivity is not something that we retain or fight hard to hold on to, but we're most free when we can give it up easily for the sake of the better of another person. Paul would say we were the most free when we are servant to all. Now, there's a couple things that we need to run through today. Two things, in fact. We're going to talk about Paul's method to his madness. He has a missional method in mind. He has people in his sight, both in the church and outside of the church. And he has an idea, a philosophy, if you will, to which his life is going to be poured out in a specific way so that all people benefit. And then second, we're going to ask a very practical, real question that you should be asking by the end of this, if not asking already, and that is where do we personally draw the line? So, wow, I'm just missing all kinds of stuff here today. Bill, you're not alone. This happens to me too. So, aha, there it is. You with me this morning? We're good? All right. That's good. Uh, Let's do this. Let's go to work, huh? If you don't have a Bible this morning, if you do have a Bible this morning, look at the pew back in the front of you. There should be a red-ish maroon NIV that's there in front of you. Uh, You're going to be in 1 Corinthians 9. For you who are borrowing a Bible, it's going to be page 1134, bottom left-hand page. For those who have a Bible, get to 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to start in verse 19. 1 Follow along with me when you get there. So though, Paul speaking of himself, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Or maybe better read, I might lead some to salvation. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Let's pray. Father, in the name of your son Jesus, we have a confident expectation that your word will do exactly what it intends to. So let us be those that hear intently. Let us be slow to speak. Let your word have its perfect work on our hearts and in our minds. For those that are not, may you save them this morning. For those that are, may you enlighten us more so to your calling, to your choosing, to your drawing us into mission. 
May we leave this morning with sort of an abounding desire for not only the people in the body, but those outside of us. We want to be an effective people. We want your kingdom and your cause to move forward in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So in lieu of these two things that we need to cover today, namely Paul's method and the practical question at the end, we're going to start off with Paul's method. Now, I think that it's important to give a little bit of background so that we can be clear, because we're ultimately dealing with the apex or the climax of the first eight chapters. Paul is giving his personal testimony as a response or answer to a lot of the questions that have been looming up until this point. And ultimately, what happens in the beginning of chapter 9 is this. Paul starts out by just giving an explanation of his own rights, his own human, Christian liberties and rights, things that you and I both deserve and have every right to. Well, yeah, we have every right to. And then ultimately, his reason for refusal. The ones brought up are this. He has the right to eat and drink whatever he wishes, the right to a spouse and a normal life as he sees fit, as well as the right to, by virtue of his work, the financial support of the church. This doesn't seem weird for a pastor. I'm one. I retain these rights. Often, daily. But watch what he says in response to them. Verse 12, if you were to go a little bit further back. But we did not, Paul speaking of himself, Barnabas, and the rest of the apostles, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up anything rather than to hinder the gospel of Christ. Though Paul had every right to a very normal, rational life, he willingly forfeited those things, or at least some of them, for the cause of Christ. His great concern that there might be some who are hindered from hearing the gospel preached and responding in faith was enough to inspire him to give up what he freely had. And it's important for us to see that and to ask a very important couple questions. That's great for Paul. We can read this. We see Paul as a super apostle. He that traversed the entire Mediterranean world, changed everything, planted churches. I mean, he's literally the rock star of the Christian church. And so not many of us identify well with him. And rightfully so to some degree. So the question that we should be asking right now is, okay, that's good for Paul. Seems a little unrealistic for me. But what about us today? Does this function? Does this exist? Does this apply to us today? And I'm only going to give you a snippet because we'll revisit this at the end. But if you move forward to chapter 11, verse 1, Paul ends by saying this, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So everything that Paul was doing and writing concerning himself that he displayed in practice and speech in the church was meant to be modeled for Christians. All of it. It was meant to be modeled for Christians. So when we move forward today, let us be careful not to say, I don't, I don't think that applies. Like, this is a manifesto to the church. I'm living this out in front of you because I'm seeing it in Jesus so that you would follow my example and follow Christ Jesus. Do we want to be followers of Christ this morning? Okay. Let's keep going. Paul's method. Number one, earn the relationship at any cost. I put in parentheses at the bottom, within reason. We will talk about that at the end again. But right now, earn the relationship at any cost. Though I, and you're not going to see the text up here, I apologize. Verse 19, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. This is Paul's general call to the church to be willing to adjust and adapt. Paul did not have to. He was free. But he willfully became a slave. He chose to do something out of his freedom. Now, why did he do this out of his freedom? He writes in another letter in Galatians 5.13, speaking to the church, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, like I, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. The flesh meaning the desires within you that lead to sin, Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So Paul had a theological persuasion that said this, that if I am free to do as I will, then that freedom ought to be used 
directly in proportion to how much I love the body and love the broken world. My freedom isn't really free if I have to keep it to keep it. I'm most free when I can give it up to fulfill the purposes that I've been called here in the first place. Earn the relationship at any cost. You're going to see five circumstances or five instances in which Paul uses this term win some. And it goes like this. To the Jew I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Similarly, those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Okay, so Paul had experience with Jews. He was one, in fact, an extremely zealous one, as he talks in other testimonies of how poorly he acted as a result of his zeal and his Jewishness. So he was well acquainted with that and had considered himself free from the obligations. He didn't stop believing he was a Jew. He just viewed himself as free from, as he would word it, the curse or obligation of the law. I no longer have to wear the clothes. I no longer have to grow my hair a certain way. I'm no longer restricted to dietary restrictions or specific days of worship. I'm free. However, I would have a hard time earning any kind of a platform or relationship or ability to communicate this beautiful gospel that has so transformed me to a person if I can't meet them in a sense of commonality. So he said, my freedom goes away. And to the Jew, I'll wear the clothing. To the Jew, I'll abstain from certain foods. I will go to synagogues and worship on certain days at certain time for the sake of winning some. Now, the Greek term for win and the Greek term for save are relatively the same meaning, but the way that I read it is it's a progressive It's a progressive thought. It's a progressive motion. Paul is saying, I'm going to earn this so that we can move towards hopeful salvation. Everything that I do here, it's with an end game in mind. And we're going to talk about the end game in just a moment. But he says, to the Jew I became a Jew. To those under the law, whether they were proselytes or Jews, I became like them in order to win them. To those who who do not have the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. Everybody else, not just the Jew, but to the Gentile, all of them, to those who are not bound and determined by the same cultural and religious ethnicities, I become like them. This means I take off the garb, I put on a different style of clothing, I'm free to eat sort of whatever's fed to me. I go to the various cultural groups, gatherings, and meetings, and I earn capital with the Gentiles, so that I might win them with a goal in mind. And then thirdly, to the weak I become the weak to win the weak. This is an in-house resolve. These are Christians. He says, he's saying it this way. To those who maybe don't totally understand everything, who in other parts of the letter he refers to should be eating meat but are instead still drinking milk, to those who don't fully understand the doctrines that I get and that I teach, I come low, specifically to the Corinthian church. He says, I sought to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. I put things of most importance first. He's saying to the weak, to those who don't get it, to those who don't understand, who never went to seminary, who haven't spent their life in Bible studies, who are just hanging on, Jesus saves I came with the message of Jesus saves for them. I presented myself weak, seemingly uneducated, doctrinally complacent for the purpose of winning some, earning that capital with a purpose in mind. Does anybody know who this gentleman is right here? It's a very inviting face. Anybody? Thank you, Pastor Bill. Cool pop culture relevant man. <laughs> Matt is Yahoo, yes. Uh, I'd say like in 2008, 2009, he came on the scene. This very staunchly Hasidic uh, Jew who obviously plays the part is a musician and performer and entertainer who does reggae hip-hop. It's great, by the way. I absolutely adore him. But his desire in music was to do two things was to promote the beauty of Judaism and to be a a symbol to the youth 
of Hebraic culture that it's okay to stick to your Hebrew roots. I mean, he was a, he was a token emblem to the younger audience that it is okay to follow God, to love your religion, and to seek it with passion. And he stuck to that for years. I mean, look at that face. That is a hard face to market. And he knew it. He knew it. So what's really interesting is, is for a play on words and, and pictures, we're going to say this. To the Jew, he became the Jew. I mean, yeah, he became a Jew. Now watch this. Do you recognize this guy? Yep. This last year, somewhere in the midst of his resolve, he said, you know, I can't get anywhere in Hollywood. That face, that hair, that crazy awesome sideburns, my clothing, very specific, my time on the Sabbath, not being able to be anywhere on, from Friday to Saturday evening, hindered my ability to have any kind of effect in Hollywood. I couldn't get a job in Hollywood to save my life. I couldn't do any type of TV or movie, uh, no acting whatsoever. I'd lost that footing. He's like, I can sell a million albums worldwide and I can play shows everywhere, but I can't get anywhere in Hollywood. And it bothered him. He says, I can't take what I believe there. And so he said, okay. I'm cutting my hair. And what's funny is when he stopped looking like a hobo, he actually looks like a like a Abercrombie and Fitch model. I mean, he's not doing too bad. But to him, he said, look, in order to go there, I have to play the part. It's okay for me to cut my hair. It's okay for me to bathe. It's okay for me to eat whatever they offer. It's okay. And so this last year, he decided to go to those not under the law. Now, I want to be careful when making the connections, but you get the picture. He saw that there was an absolute need, had very sincere, thorough, personal convictions, and was willing to ditch them for the sake of having an impact on someone else. It's really a very biblical model. One more story I'll share with you. Edith Schaefer, the wife of the late Francis Schaefer. If any of you guys have ever read Francis Schaefer, he's awesome. Phenomenal theologian, scholar, author, you name it. So the wife, Edith Schaefer, and Francis Schaefer, or sorry, she wrote about a visit the two of them made to San Francisco in 1968. And one night they went to the Fillmore West to hang out with the druggies and hippies and to take in a light show, which I have no idea what that is, so any of y'all have been here for a while, you don't want to tell me what that is later. A light show. And so she records how heartbroken they were as they witnessed on that night, in their quotes, the lostness of humanity in search of peace where there is no peace. She concluded, a time of sincere listening is needed for us now. Listening to what the next generation is saying, listening to the words of music that they are listening to, listening to the meaning behind those words, even if that means we are offended, saddened, repulsed, or burdened beyond compare. If true communication is going to continue, there is a language for us to learn. And this language will serve its whole purpose, ultimately preparing us to understand these people that we may live and die for the hope of their salvation. I want to hang out with her. That is really, really good and spot on. And by the way, in 1968, they weren't super young either. Number two. If the first of Paul's methodology is to earn that relationship at all costs, the second is most important to him, and that is ultimately to steer that relationship towards salvation. Number two, steer that relationship towards salvation. Verse 22, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And again, I would argue... It's not Paul saving some. I think it's better translated that he might lead them towards salvation or bring them to salvation. But I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. It's this desperate plea that says that I'll get rid of everything. I will put on anything. I will go here. I will go there. I will say what I need to say. I will be where I need to be because at the end of the day, the great hope that I have is that Christ will save those that hear the gospel. 
And so one of the most intimate areas of my life, relationships with other people, will be missional. Will be on purpose. It will be to a great end. And this is where he's getting at. This is an, there is an ultimate purpose to our mission, to our relationship building, to our outward approaches. It's salvation. We don't have to beat around the bush. We don't have a great hope just to garner a bunch of friends or new church attendees. We want people that have seen, fallen in love with, and have submitted their lives to Jesus Christ. That's the end game. So if that's the case, then I want to deal with this thought. Is it selfish or shallow to pursue the relationship of your neighbor or build a friendship with a coworker? with a preconceived hope in mind that they would be saved. I read another article, I'm not going to quote because it was horrible, but the whole argument was, that's the downfall of Christians. They're so presumptuous, they only want relationships so that they can get us into church. They only want relationships so that we'll worship. They said dead God in the article, but I don't buy that. So they only want relationships so that we'll follow Jesus. So the question is this, and something we have to actually deal with. Is it shallow or selfish of us to live in that manner, to seek them for that purpose? I would say no. And I'll tell you why. I want to love somebody well. Like when I look at my wife and I say, babe, I love you, I don't want that to be sort of cliche, conflicted, and passive. I want to be able to look my wife in the eye and know that everything that I'm doing is for that purpose, so that I can mean it, so that she would know it, and so that it would, we would grow in that. I want to be genuine in my love to my wife. I want to be genuine in my love to my friends and to you. So it begs this question then. If it's not, it, if you fall on the side that says it is or it isn't, it is selfish, it is shallow, or it's not, Here's what breaks the question apart. What do you believe about judgment and salvation? Let that rest on you for a second. Before you answer the first question, what do you believe about impending judgment and salvation? Romans 5, 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? This is the only time in all that Paul writes out of 13 letters that he says what we're saved from. The only time. It says saved a lot. It's the only place where he says what we're saved from. It's pretty clear here. Paul's desire to build a relationship, to build in love towards anyone, whether they're in the church or outside, is that they would be saved from what he believed to be true, and that is that apart from salvation, we die and face judgment, and God's wrath is on us. Not pretty, not something you want for anyone if you love them. So if I desire to love my neighbor sincerely, is it wrong for me to want the most loving, the most dynamic expression of such? The safety and care of people? No. It's just not. If we believe that judgment is coming and being stored up for wickedness and faithlessness, which we are all a victim of, and seeking relationships with people in hopes that they might be saved is the highest form of loving that person. Don't call yourself a lover of people if you're not willing to. Steer the relationship towards salvation. Number three, and the last of Paul's method, share in the blessings of the gospel. Verse 23, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. So Jesus tells us in John three thirty six that he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not trust, obey, respond, whatever, to the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God stays on him. So the alternate, alternative sorry, to the wrath of God is eternal life. This tells us what Paul wins people for. It tells us what he hopes for. And it tells us what he wants to participate in. See, so we didn't hopefully think that Paul was just such a genuine nice guy. That everything he did was purely for the benefit of others. That there was no reward for himself. 
We didn't really think that all of his efforts were totally altruistic, because they're not. He knew that there were serious implications and rewards for him. Paul believed that to be a Christian, to hear the gospel, to believe it, to let it transform him, and then to live differently, meant that there were responsibilities in that and rewards for obedience. Now watch what he says about this. If the scripture is true, if it's true, I assume Paul would have known this. 1 John 4.20 has some serious weight for us at least. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates his brother or his sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and their sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You guys picking up on the connection here? It's not you might a little bit. It's not you might be a marginal Christian. You might do okay. No, no, it's very black and white. You can't say that you love God and hate people. And though none of us would probably say we hate people, what we do with our lives speaks much more than what we say with our lips. If we love God, we are responsible to love his children and those who he has yet to meet. There is a distinct love for people that is called upon in the Christian life and in many ways Paul knew this, that a lack of this did not describe him just retaining his rights, but it showed of a refusal of Christ Jesus. Let me give you one more example. Somebody that I think of very fondly. Uh, There was a missionary uh, in northeastern America, mid-1700s. His name was David Brainerd. He was a young, hip, talented cat. And at that time, if you wanted to go into the pastorate, there's basically two schools you got to be trained in. It was either uh, Princeton or Yale. Yeah, yeah, Princeton or Yale. One was, um, I should probably know these things before I get up here. So anyways, Princeton or Yale, we'll just stick with that. And during the time of the Great Awakening, uh, old school professors were very seemingly rigid and, and stick to their guns. And the younger student body was just so full of zeal and life. And they were just so passionate about Jesus and just wanted the world to know. That they often were conflicted when they would get behind these lecterns or they would hear men from behind these lecterns teaching them about the glorious things of God with such little passion. And so a lot of the student body would begin to insult their professors by saying, we just, we just don't understand how you can say these things but do nothing about them. And so the professors got so upset that they basically got some of the heads of school together and said, we're going to set a new rule in the motion. If they don't act politely and reverently, they're out of the program. Now see, this wasn't just you swap to another Ivy League school. You only have two. And if you got out of one, you may not get into the other one, which means you could not be ordained for ministry. For those of you who wanted to be pastors or be involved in full-time ministry, this was a big deal. And of course, David Brainerd said something stupid one day and was removed from the school. Now, whether it was pride or arrogance after the fact, what we do know is that even though a lot of his friends who had some pull tried to get him into the other school, he refused to go. I mean, he was convicted to heart that what he said was sincere. He believed that we can't just believe the gospel, but our lives have to be wrung out as a flawless representation that we've been changed. So he put his money where his mouth is, and he went to the people that nobody wanted anything to do with. He decided he would go north to the Native Americans, which was not sexy, which was not cool, it was not popular. Nobody was getting book deals or hitting the uh, conference circuit off that. There was very little money. It was dangerous. People were getting sick, dying. Sometimes they were hostile. But David Brainerd, at the young age of 26, decided he was going to do that. He was going to go. He desired to go where Christ had not yet been named. So all we have, because while he was in school, he started to get what they found out later was tuberculosis. But all we have from him is, is some journal, basically a big journal of journal entries. And he was sick the whole time he was in the field. And he forfeited, by being there, some very specific things. A normal education, career path, 
hope for a spouse, children, a house. He willingly forfeited these things at a young age so that he could be amidst a people that may or may not even desire to hear the gospel in hopes that if he served them well in love, it would capture their hearts and they would hear it and repent and believe. One of his last entries into his journal reads as this. We should always look upon ourselves as God's servants, placed in God's world to do his work, and accordingly labor faithfully for him out of love. Not with the design that we would grow rich or great, but to glorify God and do all the good that we possibly can. Through this disposition, we find the greatest peace. 29 years old, he dies. The latter year and a half of his life, he preached from inside a tent in a bed because he was too sick to get out, and the Native Americans came to this little tent and just tried to hear him. He just thought they were more important. He'd love the people that he didn't know, that he probably had very little commonality with, that didn't build any of his capital. He was not networking well in that sense. But he said, I have something that I want them to have. So we understand basically, Paul's method is this. I have every right and privilege as you because I'm so compelled by a love for people because Christ first loved me that I'm willing to use them, to give them up, to not have them, to have them all, to, to wear this, to eat that, to go here, to go there for the sake of winning an opportunity to present a gospel that will save them and change their whole disposition. I'll do that. Now for us, this compromise, so to speak, still should be bubbling up within you to draw some questions. Where do we draw the line? Because today when we think of missional living, if you read the popular nerdy Christian material, the major scopes of conversation are to drink beer or not to drink beer, to go hang out at a bar or not to hang out at a bar, to listen to secular music or to not. From somebody who lives in this generation, these are some of the saddest conversations I think I've ever had. These don't seem like like big loss to me. But nonetheless, our conscience gets really freaked out at compromise because we don't know where sin begins and where the mission of God meets it. We don't don't want to be victim of being in the world. I mean, we do care about people and we do want to go after them, but we don't want to be worldly and so as a result meet the same demise. So where do we draw this line? And I I love, I do, I love Paul. I think he's just a big nerd like me, but I really love him because he just puts out a great litmus test for these people. Very plain, very straightforward. I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life just chewing on this, and I hope you do too. If you jump back to, or jump ahead to chapter 10, starting in 31, and go all the way to verse 1 of 11, he writes it this way. So whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of Christ, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Likewise, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's a very fair and balanced test. If you're ever wondering, if you just get, you just decide, you know what? I've got coworkers, I have friends, I have family, I have neighbors, and I'm going to seek their relationship with all of me. I'm going to put everything on the line. I'm going to give up all my preconceived stuff, and I'm going to go after them. Heck, I'm going to do something really crazy. I'm just going to mess around in these blocks right around here, just for kicks. Here's how you know if you are seeking the best interest of the people for the glory of God or if you're sinning. Pretty simple. I think I made a slide. Let's see. I did. Ask yourself this. Does it glorify God? Does it glorify God? I realize that may sound very general, so I'll, I'll make this clear. In the scriptures, is it articulated as sinful and offensive? If it's not, you're probably okay. Does it make much of Jesus? Does it make little of you? You're probably okay. Does it uphold the scriptures? Does it enjoy and implore the love 
and growth of other people, you're probably safe. Number two, does it protect from sin? Not only yours, but theirs. What's interesting about his, his inclusion of the weaker brother is that it's really easy to derail Christians. Leaders have this huge responsibility. I am constantly asking God to help me keep my mouth shut, especially among young people. Because young people have a very strict and glorious conscience that makes them feel really bad. But if they fight it and go against it, they can fall hard. So our duty is to protect them from sin as well as ourselves. Does what I am articulating to them drive them to sin? Does our commonality, does our time together cause them to go against good conscience of moral, of their moral compass before the Lord? Does it cause me to overstep my boundaries into their life and thus causing myself to sin as well? And then lastly, does it consider the needs of others above your own? This is the tough one. The other ones I think we're okay with. This is the really hard one because this is the most costly. Does it consider your interests and needs as more important than my own? That's a tough one. Are you seeking out the salvation of others? Is this relationship focused on going somewhere? Or is it just feeding your needs, your ego? It's a good question to ask. Now, because we don't set out beautiful, pristine silver trays for nothing, I felt that it's necessary to say this. When we go through something like this, we still should have a why. There still should be a why looming there. Okay, I get it. This is what Paul did. And I see that this is why I should do it. And then I shouldn't draw the line, or I should draw the line based on these three things. But ultimately, why? Why go after anybody? Why not just trust God to bring people who are paid to do this, to do it? They're probably better at it than me. They're probably going to be more effective. It's probably going to strike me less. going to have to be a whole lot less work. I'll be much more comfortable. So why? I want to invite the deacons down. It's because of this. I don't have any, any shrewd, cool reasoning for it. No more points. No more quotes from authors. When we come here we celebrate something that changes our entire trajectory forever. The Christian experience was altered right here. Jesus stood before his friends. His friends. And said, this is my body, this is my blood. He held up two specific Elements of food, bread and wine, normal customary food at the time. He said, in a very short while, I'm going to be turned over, I'm going to be, excuse the term, slaughtered for you. Sorry. This broken body, this poured out cup of my blood is going to mean something really important very soon. And we know the rest of the story. The Christ wasn't forced in any direction, but he willingly sought the best interest of you and I and every person that would believe throughout history past and future. And he saw that the best interest of theirs was to do the thing that they can't do. Atone for a brokenness that has them ruined and bring them back to life. Restore to them a relationship that they have desired and sought, whether they've known it or not, a need that they could not fulfill. And so my challenge to you, I'll say this first. If you're a believer, if you've confessed Christ as true, worthy of your worship, willing to lay your life down for his cause and to follow him until you meet him again, this is for you. 
This serves two ways, as a reminder of what was accomplished in the past and as an inspiration of his life that still exists forevermore that you will be raised up in. It's part of a covenant that he made with you in love. So when you take this, this morning, draw in your mind to the place where God swung low and set aside all, or at least most of his divine attributes to come after you. Let that be the inspiration for why you would go to a hurting world, why you would make friends with neighbors, why you would seek co-workers, why you would compromise areas that maybe you're not totally comfortable with so that you could build relationship and capital with a purpose that they might meet Christ Jesus through your life and your testimony and the preached gospel. And then they might be redeemed and restored forever. If you love God, then you will love people as Jesus first loved you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this table, a table that we do not belong at, but a table that you set a place for us and you brought us here and seated us in honor as your children, not as your enemies. God, you're faithful in ways we can't even begin to imagine. But I am thankful for your son. I am thankful for the way you poured out his life that it pleased you to bruise him because you knew you were reconciling the world to yourself. Encourage your children to rejoice in the risen Savior and to become missionally minded, not because a pastor told them to, not because a church set out to make this their new purpose, but because Jesus came after us in the same way and Paul modeled it and called us to model him. If we were loved first, if we were sought first, draw us to love everyone else this way too. In Jesus' name, amen. you sing this with me? I hear the Savior say thy strength indeed is small child of weakness watch and pray find in me thine all in all Jesus paid it all all to
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Sing that one more time. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. He that he was betrayed. He sat with his friends, picked up a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks and blessing it, he broke it. He articulated to his, his friends, his people, this was a sign of a broken body that was coming. It was part of a process of calling men home, women and children home. Likewise, he took the cup. And what I love about this statement is that he articulates to his friends that this is the blood, my blood, that is being poured out for the sins of many. And then he promises that he will not drink of this cup again until he is with them again. So this denotes not only that Christ is crucified and dead, but a promise that he will rise again and be joined with his people again. This covenant is everlasting. When we partake in this, it's not only to remember what happened in the past, but it is to rejoice in what is continuing to happen in the future. The mission that we can be a part of God be the glory. Take and eat. And likewise, take and drink. Let's pray. Father, we're surrounded by a city people that are strangely different than us. They are awkward. They believe things that we do not. They practice things that we abhor. They say things that offend us and embarrass us. They make it very difficult to relate. But you know what? That is not the sign of the purest of evil. I believe actually that's the sign of a broken person trying to find some semblance of wholeness. You didn't look at us as impossible missions. You counted the cost of what it would take and you did it. So draw us to do the same. It's worth it. You can save anyone. and You have. There's a room full of anyone. much as we would take a part of this offering and remember and look forward, it should require and apply that we will pour out our lives for your mission and your cause. We will believe so thoroughly that the gospel is as powerful as it claims to be. Our lives will follow suit. God, we want San Francisco to be known for Jesus. San Francisco to be known this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with us as we sing this last song?
For those of you who um, are seeking a love that knows no bounds, a wholeness that, that any of us would have yet to see, who are wrestling with who is Christ, it isn't a matter of changing this, becoming this kind of person, not being this kind of person to come here. God loves every single one of us as we are. God doesn't see class or category or anything, and we have to jump ship. All of us are individuals beloved by God. But because he loves each one of us, he draws us to himself. For those of us that claim Christ, he said, if you wish to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, if you let go of these rights, let go of these privileges, let go of it having to be this way for my sake, not only will you gain life, but it will be life in its full, not sometime in the great by and by, but worked out through the dust of our life. Christianity is not primarily about being right, but it's willing to be wrong for the sake of Christ. In Christ is all the fullness of truth. But Christianity isn't primarily about being right. It's about being loved and being God's love to anyone. That's what God calls us to do. That is the great privilege he has given us, and we need him every step of the way. If you would like to call out to God, wrestle to God, with God in prayer, I'd like to invite our prayer counselors down. I'm going to pray for you right here, as long, whatever it takes. If you want to say, how can I... How can I get on this crazy train? How can I be part of this community, not the Ozzy Osbourne kind, the, the part of this community that, that seeks to love and engage people through those doors, some couches, a living room, about 10 minutes, find out more about who we are and, and how we can plug in. Um, if you had plans on getting some good, warm, comfort food on this cold day, change them. Because we have a chili cook-off for you, just follow the smell, the, the good part of it, downstairs, um, just, just out to the left, um, and all the proceeds go to our Mexico missions team, um, going to be used in a great way, and, and you will be most comforted by this warm food, it'll be warm fellowship, uh, mas caliente, so please all, all engage and, and, and follow people down there, please come for prayer. And again, as I said, this is the ending of services and now the continuation of our service as a verb to be God's will wherever he's called us to his glory. See you next week. Take care.